around watching. Jesus steps in. He heals this boy, delivers this boy from this demon, and then he tells his disciples, y'all have to stay connected to me. That's the whole thing about this kind only comes out by prayer. You have to remain in me, abide in me. That's when you can bear fruit. And so that's where we're going to pick up starting in verse 30. They left that place. So that's Jesus and the 12 disciples left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Again, we've got the same idea that we've seen for three or four weeks straight now. The disciples continue to not understand who Jesus is or what he's doing because it doesn't fit with their expectations of the Messiah. And at this point, they're afraid to even ask. I think they've, they've missed it so often. He's continuing to reemphasize the same thing. They're not understanding. They're just they're afraid to ask. The most interesting word in this section to me is that word betray. It actually can also mean to give up or to give over. Romans 8.32, the same word, says this. God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up, that's the same word as betray. For all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? On Easter, we talked about these Good Friday moments that we all have, these times when whatever we've been hoping for, believing for, trusting for, we see it dying on a cross and we're confused and we're scared and we're frustrated and we're angry and all of these different emotions that we're all going to experience multiple good fridays over the course of our life and what do we do in the midst of that i think this word betray is it's a good word for us it provides comfort this event that from the disciples perspective looked like god's plan had been thwarted judas betrayed jesus he undercut god's plan from a different perspective God gave his son up. Ephesians 2, the same word as Jesus says, Christ gave himself up. So from one perspective, it looks like God's plan is being subverted. Betrayal, from a different perspective, God plan, God's plan is being fulfilled. He gave his son up. His son willingly gave himself up for. I don't know how God uses sinful choices to accomplish his purposes. I just know that he does. And that should comfort all of us as we live in a fallen world. Just because we live in a fallen world doesn't mean God can't accomplish his purposes. He absolutely can. I don't get how he does it. I just know that he does. And that one word, it's two sides of the same coin. For sometimes you're going to feel betrayed. You're going to feel like this whole, it's all falling apart from your perspective. If there's some way for you to step out of that, ask God for his perspective. What looks like betrayed to you might really be God's activity, giving something up. we got to move. So uh, they come to Capernaum when he was in the house. They come to Capernaum, they move to a house. So remember, Jesus has called these 12. He said, let's go away so I can teach you. He said they, they moved away from the crowds. They don't want anybody to know what he's about to tell. It's private time with his disciples. He knows his time on earth. The clock is ticking. He maybe has six months max left to live depending on when this happened in his ministry. And so he's got to get some stuff into these guys. He's trying to download some information that they're going to need to carry on his mission. I'm thinking, if I'm hearing that, all right, let's pull away so, we can, so I can teach you. Let's get into this house so that it's private. I'm thinking he's going to wow them with something. Here's the key to successful ministry. You guys just blew it with his dad and his boy. Let me tell you what you can do so that doesn't happen again. Let me tell you some Here's what's going to happen in the future and how you can prepare yourself for it. Here's how you pray. I mean, something 
significant, earth-shaking, I would think, if he's going through all this trouble to get them alone. Listen to what he says. What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. He said, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher said John. John's one of the three in the inner circle. This is awesome. We saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one does a miracle in my no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, whoever gives you a cup of cold water in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. That's the earth-shattering news. I don't even know what he's talking about. Worms, salt, cutting off your hand. Here's a kid who's arguing about... That's it. Not, guys messed up. Here's how you can cast out demons. Here's a key to seeing people healed. Here's some tips on how to preach the gospel. None of that stuff. He's telling them how to live together. For him primary. John 13, 34, excuse me, and 35 says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By all this, men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What Jesus is saying is, if you love people the way I loved you, if you love each other, he's talking within the family here, if you love one another the way I loved you, then everybody will know that you're my disciples. And we talked last week about what a disciple is. It's someone who's attached himself to a rabbi and says, I want to do everything just like this guy. I want to think like him, act like him, talk like him, live like him. My whole life, I'm wrapping around him. When people see me, I want them to see him, my rabbi. And Jesus is saying, if you love each other the same way that I've loved you, then they'll know you're mine. They'll know that you've been following me. So this is all I got for Mother's Day. My mom, I have... I have an older sister and a younger brother. My older sister was, is an angel. Me and my younger brother went at it pretty good um, for a lot of our life. How many times? Can't y'all just get along? So that's the message this morning for Mother's Day. Here's how you can just get along for all of you moms who have multiple kids. First thing you see, there's this distinction between positioning ourselves over against somebody else and serving one another. That's his whole thing. What are y'all arguing about on the road? You're arguing about who's the greatest. I have never actually been in a conversation where people have argued about who's the greatest. Have y'all ever? Anybody? Who, who goes around saying they're the greatest? Muhammad Ali. Anybody else? I don't know. In the north, maybe y'all do this. In the south, we're much too polite to directly say we're the greatest. We've come up with much more subtle ways of communicating 
that were great. It's called the humble brag. Are you familiar? The point of the humble brag is to outwardly express humility while at the same time showing you that I'm better than you are. We take advantage of a southern convention in the south. It's whether I like you or not, I'm trained to congratulate you or compliment you on something you've done well. I might despise you, but if somehow you succeeded in some area of your life, my job when I see you is to congratulate you and compliment you. And the humble brag takes advantage of that convention where you know compliments and congratulations are going to come your way and then you can exploit them to remind the person who's giving you the compliment how much better you are than them. It looks a lot of different ways. Kind of the Bush League humble, dra- humble brag is its triangulation. That's uh, complimenting yourself through another. You know, the coach said little Johnny is the best player on the team. I had no idea. I guess all of that work I've done with him in the backyard has finally paid off. You see how I did that? Humble. I didn't know. It's just, it comes back to me. The work that I, that's Bush League. That's people who are just getting started in humble brag. And then there's a progression and it gets more and more subtle. There, some people are, uh, they're extenders. That's what they do. You've got triangulators and then some people extend. You, you played great today. Oh, no, I didn't. I left so many shots out on the course. No, really. You played fantastic. I felt like I was scuffling the whole time. Well, you did better than I did. Well, I guess you're right. I did do okay. I'm extending the compliment until you put a comparison between you and me and you remember who's the best. Then I grab onto it. All the time, people do this. They're extenders. Humility, oh, I didn't play that well. Here comes the brag. Once I hear, but you did better than me, you're right, I did do better than you. Let's point that out. Some people are, uh, they're down players. Congratulations on your new promotion. I'm sure you're super excited. Oh, it was nothing. I'm sure if you got an Ivy League education like me and closed a few seven-figure deals like I did this year, you'll be sitting in my seat soon enough. You see that? I'm all shucksing your congratulations and at the same time reminding you how much better I am than you are. You don't have the same education and you're not as good at your job. But if you ever get there, okay. I think the most subtle are enhancers. These to, this is, if triangulators are way down here, very obvious enhancers to me, that's the cream of the humble brag crop. Congratulations on Sally getting straight A's this year. I know it. You would think after her doing it for five straight years, we'd be surprised, but we're not. (laughs) What? What? I'm going to take your compliment, and I'm going to enhance it. All the time, people do that. That's how we in the South show who's the greatest. Sometimes we give backhanded compliments. That's a completely different category. It has nothing to do with making me feel good. It's just tearing you down. That dress, you look great in that dress. It does wonders for your figure. Okay. What are you saying about my figure? I don't wear a dress, but if I did, (laughs) that would be an example of a backhanded compliment. Knock you down a few notches. Most of us don't go straight at who's the greatest. We don't do that. We don't go around kind of waving the flag of our accomplishments. But because we're insecure, usually, That's where it's rooted in. Because we're insecure, we all have this need to jockey and position ourselves. That's probably what the disciples are doing. They just failed miserably 
in ministry. The three guys who are the favorites, according to everyone else, are up here with Jesus on a mountain having this magnificent, magnificent experience. Then you got the nine leftovers down trying to minister to some kid. They blow it. They cause this huge, chaotic eruption of activity. Jesus has to come in and save the day. They're, he's telling them, this is who I'm going to be. They still don't get it, and they're so afraid of, but because they haven't gotten it, they don't want to ask him for clarification. So it's natural in those moments when you're insecure, I don't know if I'm in, if I'm out, if I'm good, if I'm bad, to start trying to stake your territory. And we do that in multiple ways. And what Jesus is saying, you can't do that. Servants look to meet the needs of other people. And it doesn't matter if they like them, and it doesn't matter if they feel like it. it just, that's what servants do. That's their job, is to meet needs of other people. This is Luke 17, Jesus talking. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? The answer is no, he wouldn't. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? The answer is no, he wouldn't. The servant's just doing his job. So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. That's the picture for us. That's what Jesus is saying. Rather than jockey, if you want to jockey for position, rather than trying to be first, make yourself last. That's what he said. Be the servant of all. And again, being a servant is not always fun. It's probably hardly ever fun. I don't know any five-year-old who says, when I grow up, I want to be a servant. I want to be last. Nobody says that. We all want to be first. We want to be the boss. We don't want to have to serve others continually. We want to, okay, if i got to do that when I'm just starting out, I'll intern for a little bit, but eventually I want to move past that. That's professionally, but you can use that same mindset in every aspect of life. We've made it when we have people serving us. It's not what Jesus says. He turns the whole thing completely upside down. Rather than trying to be first, make yourself last. And then he brings this little kid out here as a, it's a visual or a living parable. Here's this little kid. Children in this society are the bottom rung. They don't do anything for anybody, absolutely seen and not heard. No value to the family at this point when you're a little child. Bottom rung of society. And he puts them out here and says, y'all got to welcome this guy. And when you welcome somebody like this, you're welcoming me. So when you welcome the guy who in your mind is at the bottom rung, you're actually welcoming me who's at the top rung. Remember, he's God. So for us, there's nothing wrong with networking. We got to do that. That's part of what makes business work and all of those things. I get it. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Win-win is better than win-lose. Being a servant is being willing to say lose-win. I'll lose so you can win. Rather than me standing on your back so I can get ahead, I'll let you stand on my shoulder so you can, even if it costs me. That's hard to say. You're already thinking of all the reasons that that doesn't work or all of the scenarios where you can't do that. That doesn't work in business or that doesn't work in this situation or you don't know this person. They'll take advantage of me. Absolutely they will take advantage of you. They took advantage of him. They killed him. There are no qualifiers here. Be a servant of all. Not be a servant of the nice. Not be a, ser a servant of the mature. Not be a servant of the stable. Be a servant of everybody. Move from the front to the back. 
position yourself at the back of the line, period, dot, the end. Then he moves on. So if this whole idea of being greatest, that's vertical, positioning myself above and below other folks. And then he looks at the horizontal, who's in and who's out. John, who's probably should know better. Hey, we saw this guy and he was casting out a demon in your name and he wasn't in our club, so we told him to stop. Brilliant, John. That's what God is about. If they're not a part of your club, if they're doing his work, make them stop. We do that. This probably actually doesn't apply to very many of you, actually. It's probably more for people in my position than, than, um, than it is for you. You might, you might think this way. There's over 26,000 denominations out there today. Some people say close to 30,000 denominations around the world. That's a lot of people who've said, you're not like us, you're not doing it our way, so we're going to close ranks and make a boundary. And those are people like me that do that kind of thing more often than not. People in church leadership who, for whatever reason, take a secondary issue, make it primary, and set up a, set, set up a fence around a belief system or some behaviors. It's Jesus and fill in the blank. An easy target, patriotic Christians. And they're easy because they're always wearing flags. So they're e- But yes, it's love your country, absolutely. Just don't make that a prerequisite for following Jesus. You can think the United States is the best country in the world. And a Nigerian can think Nigeria is the best country in the world. That's fine. Neither one, it, it doesn't matter. In the Bible, there's one chosen people, and it was the Jews, neither Nigeria nor the United States. So for, for us to put anything else around Jesus and, we've missed it. Again, that probably doesn't necessarily resonate with you. That might not be the way you think. I would say if there's a practical application for us as a church, we feel like God has put us here on the square for a reason, and part of the reason is because there are five or six historic churches around us that we need to figure out how to serve. We're not better than them at all. We're trying to figure out how to serve them and many of you have connections into those churches that I'll never have. I'm, I grew up at First Methodist, but now that I'm the pastor here, it's not quite as easy for me to circulate among some of those churches as it would be for you. And so my encouragement to you, just this whole thing, if we're all, if we're following Jesus, that's the ground for our relationship. That's the foundation. We don't need to put up any other boundaries because we wear shorts and they wear ties or we have drums and they don't have drums or whatever the thing is. That stuff is all secondary. What we need to figure out is how do we as a church put ourselves at the bottom of the totem pole and serve those guys. All right. Then he says, all right, so that's community. That's how we work up and down and in and out. And then he says community killers. It's sin. Sin is a community killer. Beware what does it say? If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he's not just talking, he's not talking about children there. Sometimes we think, oh, if someone causes a kid to sin, that's bad. When he's using this word little ones, he means any of his followers. Bill Dykes is a little one. I'm a little one. JD is a little one. We're little ones in this picture. If we cause any of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better basically to, to be dead than to do that. Sin is a community killer. It ruins relationships. It causes us to close off from one another. It's self-preservation mode that we go into, which can cause us to lie. It can cause us to withdraw, to isolate, to manipulate, all kinds of negative behaviors. 
are rooted in sin. We, we're ashamed of what we've done, and we pull back, all that stuff. You can figure out how all of that plays out. And Jesus is very plain. Don't cause anyone else to sin by your sin. He's so serious about us maintaining community that he says it's better for you to cut off your hand or your foot or pluck out your eye than to bring sin into this thing. I don't mean this building. I mean this body. Think about that. Obviously, he's exaggerating, but he's, he's, he's making a point. If it's causing you to sin, get rid of it. Don't bring it in to this fellowship. He's talking to his 12 disciples. So you picture your people, whoever those people are. It's two, it's three, it's ten. It's better for you to radically deal with what's causing you to sin than to bring that into the fellowship because you're going to cause other people to. If the internet is causing you to sin, then cut the thing off. I don't care if you lose whatever you lose, emails or what doesn't matter. He's saying go without a hand. We can go without email. If cable is causing you to sin, then turn it off. If money is causing you to sin, then get rid of it. He said that to a rich young man who came to him. What do I have to do to follow you? Follow all these commands. I've done that. Then sell everything. And follow me. He wouldn't do it. Whatever it is, if you're struggling with this, you know what it is that's causing you to sin. The word to you is get rid of it. Radically deal with the sin in your life. And then Paul actually pushes further. We don't have time to get into this. Read Romans 14 this week. He goes beyond the things, the sin in me that causes you to sin to my freedom that causes you to sin. That's a whole other ball game right there. If my freedom in Christ causes you to sin, I think I can eat what the example he uses. You think you can eat whatever you want, any of this meat, but there are certain people who say that meat is defiled and they're only eating vegetables. Paul says, you're right, you can eat the meat if you want to, but if you eating that meat is going to cause them to sin, then you better quit. This is Romans 14, I'll read it real quick, just three verses and we'll move. Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Make up your mind to put no stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Listen to that. Make up your mind to, put, to not put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who's in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean. You can eat whatever you want, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Don't allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. You, that's, that's a whole nother type of radical love for folks. That goes beyond, I'm not going to let my sin affect you. I'm not going to let my freedom cause you to stumble. I'm going to curtail the things that I can do because I don't want you to struggle. How come? Everyone will be salted with fire, whatever that means. It means we're all going to be tempted. We're all going to be tested. We're all going to be tried. And if you don't have a community around you, you're going to fall. We've said this before. If the enemy is a lion, he's looking for stragglers. You watch the nature shows just like me, always. It's the weak. It's the isolated who wind up dinner. Same thing is true for us. If you're in a community, the chances of you getting picked off drop precipitously. If you isolate yourself and withdraw from people who love Jesus and love you, you're in deep trouble. You have a huge bullseye painted on the back of your, on your back. 
you're going to be tested. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And then how are you going to do? If you're by yourself, I'll tell you how you're going to do. You're going to struggle, and then you're going to fail. doesn't matter how wonderful you are. Read through the Bible. Find individuals who make it. Very few. Jesus called 12 disciples, not one. He sent people out in pairs, not individually. Look through Acts. Paul is always with somebody. You hardly ever find anybody doing anything alone for any period of time except screwing up. David on the castle by himself when he should have been with his men. We, have, we, we need one another. We'll wrap with this. Have salt in yourself. Be at peace with one another. Secure and loving individuals lead to strong community. Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, we're the salt of the earth. That's who you are if you're following Jesus. If you'll be that, if I'll be that, if I'll be who I am, that leads to strong community. If I'll be who I am and Liz will be who she is, then together we've got this thing. It's when one of us starts faking it that we have problems. Finish reading Matthew 5.13. If, if salt loses its saltiness, you can't make it salty again. That's what he says. The, sea, the salt in the Dead Sea is mixed with other elements, and the salt can leach out of it, and you're left with a tasteless substance that's not worth anything, doesn't serve any purpose. And that's what Jesus is saying. You can't put the salt back into it. You've got to go find some more. And that's what can happen with us. If I'm not who I am and you aren't who you are, then we together can't be who God wants us to be. If I'm not secure in who I am in Jesus, I can guarantee you I'm going to try to jockey with you on something. I might not care if you make more money than me, but I might care if I'm, a, if I'm more spiritual than you. You might not care if you're, if you're a better parent than me, but you might care if you're a better husband than I am. We've all got things where we feel insecure. If I'm not secure in who I am in Christ, I guarantee within the context of the family of God, we'll start jockeying for position. How, do I, how can I use you to get up? And then we start, again, using one another. People aren't people. People are steps on the ladder that will help me move up to get where I want to go. If I'm not secure in who I am in Christ, then I'll allow my clique to define me. If you're not like me, you're going to threaten me, and so I'm going to keep you out here. I won't let Jesus be the basis for my choosing to relate to you. Again, we're talking within the family, not people who are not yet Christians. I won't allow that to be enough. I'll come up with another list of things, behaviors, beliefs. And if you can't check them all off, then you're out because I'm insecure about who I am in Christ. If I haven't moved to a place of really knowing this God who loves me, there's no way I'm going to love you enough, not only to not bring my sin into our relationship, but to not allow my freedom to cause you to sin. You're not that cute. I won't be willing to curb my freedom for the sake of your walk with Jesus. Until I've moved to a place of truly understanding how much he loves me, I won't love you that much. And I absolutely won't love him enough to move away from sin. The key, if you're thinking about this sin issue, cutting off your hand and your foot and your eye, or plucking out your eye, focusing on not sinning never works. That's the whole try not to think about pink elephants. Every one of you starts thinking about a pink elephant. The key is to think about something else. If you want to not sin, don't focus on not sinning. Focus on Jesus. 
Some of you, many of you have dated before. In those first few weeks when you're getting to know them, you don't think about another boy or another girl. You're totally focused on him or her, getting to know them better. It's not until kind of that wears off that your mind and your eyes start to wander. Just like I would say to someone who's married, who's struggling, don't try to, don't put up walls to say, I'm going to, these are all the things I'm not going to do to protect this, the fidelity here. I would say, learn how to love your wife more. You love her more, all of that falls away. You get to know her better, the rest of that falls away. The same thing is true with sin. You get to know Jesus better. You begin to love him more. All of that sin stuff starts falling to the side. Much easier to say no to sin when you're saying yes to Jesus than when you're just saying no to pleasure. You get that. That's kind of where we are, the good news in all of this. And then we've got to wrap. The good news in all of this. Y'all close your eyes. We'll pray. Here's the good news in the form of a prayer. Grab onto what you need to grab onto. Jesus felt like it was vital that we learn how to live with one another. All the things he could have said in this room with these guys when he knows the clock is ticking. He chooses this stuff, which to me looks like a random collection of sayings. The thread that runs through, you guys have got to learn how to love one another. That's the key. They'll know you're my disciples if you love each other like, you, like I love you. He knows our weaknesses, that we're prone to jockeying for position. Subtly or overtly, who's the best? Who's the greatest? You can't do that. Be last. We want to know who's in and who's out. Let's draw a line. Let's make a fence. We're on one side and you're on the other. Don't do that. The only line is, are you following Jesus? If I'm following Jesus and you're following Jesus, then by default, we're moving in the same direction. What else do we need to choose to love each other? He knew sin. It's a community killer. It would wreck relationships. So don't bring it into the relationship. And even farther than that, even my own freedom, your freedom can cause someone else to sin. Within this community, I have to love you enough to be willing to say no to something I enjoy for the sake of your walk with Jesus. That sounds hard. That's daunting. Makes you kind of want to go move to a monastery in the middle of the day. It's easier, maybe you're thinking, if they don't have so many people around. And this is the good news. Your identity in Christ is secure. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you're a chosen people. This is who you are. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. That's who you are. Your identity is secure, and because of that, you can choose to be last because you know who you are. You're a Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation. So who cares if somebody takes advantage of you? Your royalty in God's sight. You can give yourself away in service to others because who you are is secure. This whole idea of loving others radically, loving Jesus enough 
to walk away from sin, loving others enough to not allow my freedom to cause them to stumble. He increases our capacity to love. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. Listen, may the Lord make your love increase. You don't have to gin that up. You just ask him. I don't love her very much today. God, give me grace to do that. I'm not loving him today. Help me make this love for him increase. Ephesians 3, 17 and through 19, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Even our love for him he gives to us. That's what we said last week. The things that we need he provides. He's praying that we would have power to understand this love that surpasses knowledge. So even this love that we have to have for him and for others, he provides. You don't have to work that up either. God, my prayer for each of us as we go, you would show us how do we live in community with each other. This is, seems so basic, but it must have been important. So God, I pray you would show us within our primary relationships, within the family under our roof, our closest group of friends, what does it look like for us to live in community? And then broadly, Lord, as a church, what does it look like for us to live in community with one another? And then even bigger in this body of Christ in downtown Marietta, what does it look like for us to live in community? If that's the way people are going to know that we're your disciples, there's a world looking on. And if that's what it's going to take to get them to take notice, not of us, but of you, then God, get us there. Get us there. Increase our love for one another. Increase our love for you. Securely root us in who we are in you that we don't have to go around throwing our weight around, trying to prove who we are, trying to establish our identity by anything other than the fact that we've been chosen by you. God, I pray that this week you would show us how to live this thing out practically in the dailiness of our life. God, your blessings on everybody here. I do want to pray particularly for those moms in the room, that this would be a great, they would know not just, their kids would not just rise up and call them blessed. They would hear their Heavenly Father say to them this morning, I'm proud of you for everything that you're doing. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are free to go.